Welcome to the Infernal Schoolhouse Podcast, Explosions and Fire. My name is Brian. My name is Aaron. And we are excited for episode three of our podcast this week. And Aaron, what are we even talking about? Well, today we're going to talk about influences in gaming, specifically our influences and what kind of brought us into the, the hobby, but also the what keeps us going and lets games keep being made. Yeah, and I love this too because it's a nice juxtaposition from last week where we talked about the definitive influences, the games that helped create D&D, but now it's a little bit more of a personal note. What got us in there and keeps us going. Yeah, I love that. Might have and, edit that bit out. Yeah, and we're going to do a little bit of a round robin today where we haven't told each other what we're going to be talking about. So this is going to be kind of a blind spot for us, and we're going to see where it takes us from a conversation standpoint. Aaron, do you want to get started with your first influence? So I'm going to pick one here that I may have mentioned before, but I still use to this day as something that not only kind of keeps me in the hobby, but then also keeps games fresh. And that is Big Trouble in Little China. Did not see that coming. If you've mentioned it, I totally blocked it out. <laughs> Tell me more. So the reason I love this movie so much and then how it translates into gaming is because it is the perfect D&D session. It has everything that you can think of in a game. It's got the hero. It's got the anti-hero. It's got a very well-defined villain. It's got so many things. It's got a storming of the fortress. There's a wizard somehow in there. There's this person who's kind of a monk who comes in and fights against the bad guy. He's actually the real straight man versus the hero of the movie who's more of the comedic foil. And in this way, I think also, and it's been years since I've seen this movie, but I'm thinking too that the tone of it fits nicely as well, right? Because it's got a very kind of physical comedy kind of a vibe to it, which a lot of D&D games end up having. It does, yes. So what they have in the movie is this person, Jack Burton, who's the hero of the movie, but he's also kind of an anti-hero. He's kind of a jerk. Is this Kurt Russell? Yes. He's definitely a slob. He does just a bunch of things wrong, but somehow he still comes out on top over and over again. Very much like a bard kind of character or some sort of mouthy rogue in the game, right? And... The whole thing is him traversing this weird ancient prophecy that they have to shut down, which he doesn't even care about shutting down. He just wants to find this girl that he met in the airport that he thinks is kind of cute. And it just coincides with stopping an ancient Chinese prophecy that's going to destroy the world. And it's just him navigating this and finding things. Like one of the best scenes in the movie is where he goes into this underground of San Francisco and this weird dragon-like monster pops out of this cavern. And the wizard that's in the party, somehow wizards exist, by the way, he throws some sort of jewel bomb at it, and it goes away, and he the yells at it, you will not come out anymore. And Kurt Russell's like, what What? what do you mean? What will come out no more? How do... <laughs> that's amazing. I love it. But that being said, it has literally everything else. It's got magical potions for no reason. They take, like, shots right before they get into the final battle. There's this weird villain wedding. Have you ever done any research to find out if it was at all influenced by D&D, if the, if the screenwriters or directors have ever spoken about that? You know, I don't know. It came out, I think, in 86. So it could have been around that time. They could have been like, hey, this is kind of fun. 
But that's a John Carpenter movie. I don't know where he pulls his stuff from. Okay, that's a whole other music thing. From. John Carpenter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's insane. It's got it's got villain henchmen and they get into a battle and you could literally write down that whole movie beat for beat and just replace things that you think would work well for you in a game and it would be the best D and D game you could run. I'm excited for you to run this game. Absolutely. <laughs> what about you, Brian? Okay, so for me, when I was thinking about my main influences, the, the first memory brings me to the idea of toys and miniatures. Mm. So before I was even really watching movies or TV shows, toys, action figures, and models were to me such an amazing, intricate, inspiring component of my young life. And when I was very small kid, like three, four years old, the neighbors down the street, the Lombardos, I apparently I went down there for a whole week when my sister was born and brought mm-hmm. home. I wasn't into it, so I just stayed at the Lombardos. They had a T Rex miniature set, like a model, but with oh, like wow. terrain around it. And I used to beg to see it. I would go over and I would just ask <laughs> to see it. And I just remember how immersive it was, and it gave me this feeling of this whole other world. And so that experience led me into being really into action figures like G.I. Joe and Star Wars. Mm -hmm. I was really into it. Like a lot of kids of my generation. But then that led me into my friend John Terry when I was in like fifth, sixth grade. His brother was into D&D and Lord of the Rings. And he was the coolest. He was like the nerd god. He had all these miniatures, D&D miniatures, like the old metal molded miniatures. And he would set them up and paint them and to me, it was so advanced and so technical mm-hmm. in a way. And I, I've spoken about it a little bit already, but the, the the source books were very technical, too technical for me. But right. in a way, weird way, so were the minis. I didn't understand the game. I didn't understand how to play it. But just the immersiveness of all of these minis really just was so enamoring to me. Mm-hmm. And it can it persists to this day. So I still like I'm I'm looking over Aaron's shoulder here at, at all my minis and there's just there's got to be a hundred of them out right now that I paint and think about and talk about and yeah so that action figure mini world to me helps me create and and stay inspired for what could be and what are the stories of these little heroes I like that and I can totally go on board with that because one of the things I loved around that age was dioramas. And then even making my own dioramas. So the idea of you'd have this shoe box and you'd cut like a little hole in it. And then you would build a whole scene. And I remember one of the things that I put in one was one of those old James Bond stunt cars. They were like matchbox cars, except these ones have an actual director seat. Yes, yeah. it would flick the person out of it. And I remember just putting a little scene inside of the, the diorama box and just imagining what was happening. Imagining all the characters who were there. What speed are they going? What's happening? And I think that a lot of that translates into how you make action set pieces in games like D&D. I agree. And it's that immersiveness, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that just with your mind and just looking at a couple of sort of prompts almost, you can start to fill in the blanks and figure out what what would be happening around this or what would be happening, what happened just before or would be happening just after this moment. Right. And I think that leads you directly into the urge to be a dungeon master or a game mm-hmm. master. It's like, Ooh, I could tell this story or I could <laughs> present these options for people. Agreed. And I would say too, I'm thinking about, you know, like those star Wars figures, especially from the 1977 models and up, 
those were very much imagination required to play with. Because you didn't have articulations in the elbows and <laughs> no. knees. And they shot like a toothpick lightsaber out of the <laughs> arm. <laughs> yes. The, the crude nature of toys of our childhood directly leads to more engaging imagination. <laughs> right. um, Aaron, what is your next influence? Okay, so for me... I really like musical influences, and I don't necessarily mean the lyrics of a song, but whatever ambiance that gives me. So I'm going to fast forward about 20 years from where you're talking about, and there's this great Bush remix song. Another another one that I did not see coming. Right? <laughs> We're keeping this interesting, keeping it fresh. So for mine, it's the song Mouth, but there's this remix of it called the Stingray Mix, and I found it like a lot of people, in American Werewolf in Paris, which is a mid-movie. It's not amazing, American, right? American Werewolf in London, great movie. Yes. Paris, schmeh. Exactly. But I fell in love with that song, and what I would do is I would actually sit and write to that song, just on repeat, you know, just one of those things creating the mood. And I remember I wrote some sort of weird vampire story. It's probably some sort of adolescent story. I never want to pick them and read again, even if I could find it. But when I wrote it, I then took it and applied it towards my vampire games I was running. Oh, cool. And I just like the mood to put you in where you're like, what am I imagining? What is the world of darkness? What are these things that I want the players to see based upon what I'm feeling in this moment? I love that you say that too, because I think I think about that a lot when I play D&D or when I run a game is it's not just what are the monsters, where are you, but but it is actually centered around what does it feel like. Mm-hmm. And I think for those of us with really vivid imaginations, we can so clearly feel it. It's this mysterious, intriguing, compelling feeling that we want to sort of like bottle and then recreate or share with our friends. Absolutely, yeah. Now what about you, Brian? What's your next one? Okay, so my next one here is actually... Primarily cover art. Mm. So the classic Lord of the... Well, I, I think classic. The Lord of the Rings prints of the books and the Hobbit books. Those are great. That, that were out when I was a kid. And I think this is well-traveled territory here with the, the Lord of the Rings movies that came out. You know, right. Those were heavily influenced. But just the immersiveness of those paintings and what that may signify... And what it made me feel, and uh, the way it was evocative, and it very much related to John Terry's brother as well, because mm-hmm. he had those books, right? And so the, those I think were incredible. The Monster Manual art, the original mm. first edition, like 1979 Monster Manual, which I just <laughs> cracked open my copy. And one of the things that was really wild to me was that there was breasts in this book. I'm looking, yeah. I'm looking right here, page 51, the harpy bare-breasted, and for little. Fifth grade Brian, there was no internet or anything like that. So this was a pretty shocking thing. And then also another thing that I was thinking about too is Frank Frazetta. Mm. I don't know if you know this artist. He was a really incredible fantasy artist, but he would often feature scantily clad women, Uh. either being taken captive by monsters and dragons or being saved by the barbarian. Mm -hmm. And so this, this juxtaposition of beautiful buxom women and all of the things that I was enamored with, which is like fantasy and dragons and all that, still to this day kind of blows my mind a little bit because it seems a little bit impossible. Right. But yeah, the, so this artwork, this, this rich tradition of fantasy art, 
I still find it, it you know, like, dear listener, just Google Frank Frazetta and see these really evocative, incredible images. Maybe didn't age right. well, but I think just really paints a, a strong sense of place and adventure and opportunity. I can see like a good opportunity right now of a nice one shot where we turn it on its head and we have this man in a speedo and he's getting rescued by no longer the damsel in distress, but this well overdressed woman who's coming to save him. I love it. I think there's a movie on Netflix right now about that. It's they do the, the gender reversal. Oh, really? Yeah, it's got uh, Chris Evans and I forget the actress's name, but yeah, they do something like that. But I, I do like that idea. That's cool. And um, I I do love matte paintings, and I you know I I especially enjoy the artwork of Star Wars when they would put out these books, especially when it first came out of saying, "Hey, look at all these amazing matte paintings," and how that's that's how they went through special effects at the time was by putting those up in the background and then having that going on and. I am still captivated by those, and I still try and kind of tie that in in my own sense into a game. Like how just printing on a map, even if it's only used for 10, 15 minutes, just having this matte painting that people are standing on, they're asking questions like, wow, what is this? What happened? Yeah, that's a great use of maps in, in role-playing games, too, where if you've got enough detail, your players may just ask, like, what is that, what is that little box over there in the corner? Mm-hmm. And if you describe something, just theater of the mind, you don't really get that. They may say, is there anything else in the room? But I do love that idea of pointing to things and saying, like, what is that? Or that looks like it might right. be a lever. Or that looks like it might be a door. Or what's under that rug? Yeah. Cool. What's next? All right, so I'm going to make this surprising again. Obviously. This is one of my favorite movies, but also I think is great for atmosphere building. And that's Night of the Living Dead, the original one. Ooh. They're coming for you, Bob. Exactly. And I would say that if you pick any of my current players, or even former players, they would agree that I like bringing in horror and suspense in the games. Not to make it weird or trigger-worthy, but I think that there does need to be some sort of sensation of danger. Like, what am I doing? If you're just feeling like this video game character where it's... You, know, you could just regenerate if something bad happens. Exactly. And that movie is so claustrophobic and socially conscious and really enjoyable to watch. And if you can bring those things together, especially if I run Monster of the Week or Vampire, I want you to feel a little bit uncomfortable. I want you to have a challenge while you're playing, not just feeling like, hey, I'm this all-powerful vampire or I'm a monster hunter trying to stop some sort of enemy that's coming through. But I want you to feel like I'm a little bit vulnerable right now. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking, too, of being a player at your table when we were, as a party, thinking about doing something really stupid, and your voice as the as the game master saying things like, okay, you would know that this is a potentially lethal situation. And so, you know, you, you clearly understand that if you go into this room right now, you could die. And, Absolutely. And I think that's great, and, and I know you're not afraid of actually killing player characters in your games, because... That's part of what makes it exciting and fun is there's actually a, a chance that you may not survive. Agreed. And if anybody's listening and says they want to play sometime, I don't like killing players. Did I just say that? Okay. <laughs> no, no, you I didn't. Take it back. But so a lot of people hear that and they I automatically see. assume if I don't have a problem killing them I that see. I like doing it. I don't like doing it, but I do like causing an issue of are the stakes getting raised? Are you in a situation that might not go anywhere? It's the same thing if you were going to play. 
a murder mystery at, at somebody's house for a dinner party, you know that one of the people that's in the game is going to die because they're the victim. And then everybody else has to figure out who did it. All right. So what about you, Brian? What's All right. your next one? My next one, and it's interesting to me as I was thinking through this, as a film major back in college, I found as a kid a really kind of a gaping hole in films that would capture my my vision or my hopes for fantasy. And so, you know, because I, I was thinking through, like, what, what were the ones that I absolutely loved? Mm-hmm. And I always found them a little bit lacking, a little bit cheesy, often lacking in, in visual effects or special effects, you know, where it would like, oh, my gosh, the monster looks terrible or that hero – that hero's arc just seems really thin. But what I was able to do was really piece together the things that I loved and was inspired by with TV shows. Mm. And so a big one that I really liked was Thundercats. <laughs> I thought that one was really cool. And it was sort of the serial nature of it. Yeah. Where, you know, and they had the the sort of uh, the, the protagonist was like a little boy who just like woke up one day and he was a big, strong man. Mm-hmm. And that's like every little boy's fantasy. He's like, right. I might wake up tomorrow with huge muscles, and then I might punch everyone in the face. <laughs> so I love that show, but also just Saturday morning cartoons in general. Mm-hmm. And and even I was thinking too, just the immersiveness of for me in my experience. Even the immersiveness for me in my experience was it was like a half day. It wasn't a singular show. So Saturday morning was really special for me as a little kid, and I would wake up early. And I would make sure that I got my cereal and everything prepped. And I would sit down and I would watch the block of shows. Mm-hmm. And so part of it for me is that's how I sort of built up this endurance for an entire game. Because, you know, often people ask, how long do you play D&D for? Right. Like, well, it's a very long time. It could be <laughs> three, four hours. <laughs> it's um, not short, yeah. But to me, it takes a little while. You got to bump around into things and kind of move around in the world in order to really explore and fully express yourself. Mm-hmm. So that sat, those Saturday morning blocks were a really big influence for me. And I will say, just on the note of film, I really found that that deficit in the filmic expression of all these things truly was was explored fully with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Absolutely. Peter Jackson trilogy. But I, I just want to say the new D&D movie really nailed it for me mm-hmm. in terms of the tone, the playfulness, but also the stakes involved and the cool factor. Agreed. Yeah. And what about you, Aaron? What's your What's your next influence? So I'm going to use this one. I know it's it feels like a cheat to me, and I'm only saying this because I've used it as a one shot. But the Fellowship of the Ring, the original movie. I know where you're going with this, and I like it. <laughs> specifically, over the battle in the crypts when they're underground, and I use that for a one shot at one shot weekend. And I will say, and I've said this multiple times, and I'm going on record now. That is the singular coolest session of D&D that I've ever played because you were able to evoke exactly the feeling and the pacing of that scene. And so you were, you allowed me to get to become part of that scene, which was so cool. (laughs) Well, thank you. And for just as an explanation over it, what I had done is I wanted to turn it into a quick sort of battle session of what that would be like to be one of those characters in the game. And how I built it is I wanted to make that feel real from a D&D skill set standpoint. 
and I actually watched the scene on more than one occasion. Sure you did. And I actually timed it out, how long they were in there, and then turned it into D&D rounds. I actually tried to measure it just with my eyeballs how big the room was. And then I then built the characters from there. So, like, I assume these are probably usually five to seven level players, how well they are. Then I got the little figurines. I got the orcs. The I map the was cable. incredible. There was even the crypts yes. of the dwarf that you, that you know the, the the little Gimli could stand on yes. and yell for them to bring it on. <laughs> and then knowing that somebody might get frustrated if they couldn't play a specific character, I then made individual character bags that people would randomly pick. And so, you and, and as I recall, you actually gave the cosplay as well yes i gave little costume pieces for people to use and play with so you'd have legolas with the ears and then gimli with the beard and the axe and it was a lot of fun and so what they did is they went through the whole session and it felt like being in the movie even played the music it was a good time seeing what they could do yeah and i think the part that that i really appreciated and that i think you nailed was the the waves of orcs Mm. so it was this kind of it felt like in the middle of this endless wave. And so you could you could be killing things left and right, but you just you had this feeling of like there's just more coming. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I also enjoyed after the session when all of you had to go against the Balrog as an example of what it would be like if Gandalf, you know, his last request wasn't honored and they didn't fly. Or or he tools. or they just didn't listen. Exactly. And then I think that lasted maybe three rounds before you were all... I remember the pile of minis at the feet of the Balrog. (laughs) And I think I was Gimli, and I'm pretty sure that that the Balrog just smashed me with its foot. I think it just stomped me out when I had had fallen. And what I love about that is the the Balrog in D&D is literally cribbed from Tolkien, and they actually had to change his name to Baylor. So you're using exactly what's in the book. That was such a cool session. Aaron, do you have any more on your list? I have one more, so that way we don't get too crazy into the time on the episode. But I used this recently again in a one-shot, and I think it works perfectly for an adventure game, and that's the game show, Legends of the Hidden Temple. Which I also have witnessed with my own eyes (laughs) that you've incorporated this, quite literally. everything you want in a game. It's got riddles and trivia and puzzles they have to figure out. And then you have this crazy obstacle course that they have to go through and try and survive and then get this idol at the end and win the game. So the way I had built it is I just took influence from the different rooms in this weird temple and then built individual sets on tiles and then put those together based upon which room they went to. And it was all randomized. I didn't have it so that it's, no, it's from this room to this room. It was very much based upon what actions they did. And every single one of them had either a riddle or a way they could work through it and not have to, you know, fight something. It really felt like you were in the game. And then there was the big baddie where the temple guards who showed up and they did not do well against them. That's the whole idea of just this one thing that would take your life in the actual game show. When it shows up, it's like, uh-oh, this is an actual threat. I love that. I remember you had me make a the like god face that talked. The little miniature. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the Olmec. Yeah. That was that, was <laughs> that did show fun. up at the beginning of the temple. And in fact, the way I built it was a reverse dungeon. Where they repel in and they find this amazing wealth of gold and riches. And then they have to get out. Yes. <laughs> With as many riches as they can. I love it. Very cool. Yeah. I Again, I really like this idea too because it's 
it's really interesting, and it, honestly, even for myself to think through what what really did get me hooked and what mm-hmm. keeps me hooked. And I was a little bit surprised too, which is ironic because like I'm in a room just completely surrounded by minis, <laughs> but I was like, well, minis really did inspire me to get into right. the game. <laughs> and I think that what's great for you as a player or as a dungeon master, even a casual listener, is that find the things that cause you to have joy. Marie Kondo, this thing, right? If you have a certain thing, whether it's a fantasy genre, a book, music, a movie, use that to your advantage. Whether it's you making a character, whether it's you making a game, have fun with it. Have the fun around the things that motivate you and then bring you into it so that way you can give them that same level of enjoyment and engagement. Yeah, and I think about, I think it was Will Wheaton who said it. It's this, this whole culture. It's not about what you love, but it's about how you love it. And so it's that feeling that you're after. Whatever inspires you and scares you and fills you up, those are the things that as a DM or a player that you can bring to the table. And I think a great opportunity, of course, is to bring your character mm-hmm. to the table, right? If you're a player, instead of just saying, oh, I'm a fighter and, and orcs killed my family and I'm trying to kill some orcs, like, okay, that's enough, I guess, to go. But what are your main influences? What are the things that you loved about those influences? And how can you sort of weave those in, even if it's just the feeling? Yeah. I mean, you know, imagine yourself as a fighter. Don't just make it a, you know, white bread sort of fighter. Maybe you're a Highlander. Maybe you're on your first beheading and you've gotten your first quickening, right? And you, you can die in the game, but also you have this cool backstory and these things you're working towards. Yeah, and I think even it doesn't have to be action. So I was no. just I was just thinking like, what about your favorite rom com <laughs> character? Or right. how do you bring that in? And actually I was just thinking about too, our friend Anna. Mm-hmm. She played at your table and expl- explain her character because you were the DM for that. So she was, I believe, a paladin, if I remember correctly. I could be remembering incorrectly, maybe cleric. But she was a tabaxi, but like a kind of poorly tabaxi, so a little on the heavier side. But it had a ghost with it. And the ghost was pretty much the embodiment of Jennifer Coolidge <laughs> of stage and screen. Some of my most enduring memories of that game was, was interacting with Jennifer Coolidge, the ghost. <laughs> And it was literally just like, hey, oh, don't you have a ghost? Send her in. And then she would just do the voice and be like, I can't do it. But like, okay. <laughs> That's great. Oh, so good. Well, I think we're at a good place to stop here. We greatly appreciate listening. In fact, by the time this releases tomorrow, we should hopefully have our cool Etsy store up and running. Cool Etsy. And our first little product, which I don't want to give away right now, but it's pretty cool. I can't wait to see it. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next time.